Uh, we've been embarking on this journey of digging deep, looking at the story of the scriptures, putting together a picture and seeing the shadow of Christ from the very beginning of, of time with Genesis, a, a beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior in the creation of Adam and, and even in the fall and the things that God has done to bring about this great promise of redemption and a great promise of making a royal priesthood and how he sought to bring that about through the line of Abraham and his family. And we saw the growth of his family and we saw how the Israelites were numbered into this great number and they went in out of Egypt and were uh, in, in the Exodus and God led them out and gave them the law. And we also talked about uh, the fact that Jesus is established as the high priest and that, that the challenges and the rebellion against him are, are useless because he is the high priest. We also saw that, that our lifting up of ourselves as, and exalting ourselves, uh, last night we studied as, as kings and authorities in our own life, won't work because there is a true king and it's not us, it's Jesus Christ. And so we see this beautiful picture of the true priest and the true king leading us to be God's people. Now, tonight we're going to study an account that we find in the book of 1 Samuel. The story of, of Eli and the sons of, of Belial. Now, this story is important for us to know as the people of God, as the high priest. God expects us to be his royal servants. But this story teaches us an important lesson about that service and a mindset that we ought to have as we approach God in this very serious thing. I want to start off by looking and learning about the peace offering that the children of Israel uh, had to, to do. And when God established the priesthood, he gave them a specific thing to do uh, when handling a specific sacrifice, the peace offerings. In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 13 through 16, it says, And he shall lay his hand upon the head of it, that is, the person who is bringing this peace offering to God, lays his hand upon the head of the sacrifice, and he kills it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron, and we, we read about that when we talked about Korah and his rebellion. Aaron was the high priest that was appointed by God, and only his sons could be doing the service of the priest. It had to be sons of Aaron. And so those sons of Aaron, the priests, would sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about, and he shall offer thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. So we read about this, this process of the peace offerings. Um, you know, and, and there were certain types of peace offerings that God required the children of Israel to bring or, or told them that they could bring. There was vows or uh, there was offerings of peace, offerings of thanksgiving. When somebody was grateful to God expressing their thanksgiving, they would bring that offering. Or when somebody entered into a vow, they would, they would uh, consecrate that with this holy offering and they entered into this vow. And then there was also free will offerings. People could bring the offering just because they wanted to bring it and make this offering to God. And in Leviticus chapter 3, we get that outline of this process of how the priests are supposed to handle this sacrifice. Um, now, it's, it's interesting in verse, six, in verse 16 here how it, how it calls it the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. There's something interesting about this that it was to be eaten. Uh, we kind of get an indication of that in Leviticus chapter 7. There was a portion of this that goes to the Lord. All the fat belongs to God, and that's offered upon the altar first. 
And then there was a portion that would go to the person offering this, this peace offering. In Leviticus 7, verse 15, it says, All the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered, and he shall not leave any of it until the morning. So God gave them a specific time frame when they, bought these, when they brought these peace offerings to him. Uh, it was one day for peace offerings of thanksgiving. It was two days for peace offerings uh, for vows and for free will offerings. And a lot of commentaries suggest that the food was then taken and shared as a feast. And so they would have this great celebration. It was a celebratory sacrifice. It was a very wonderful sacrifice. Something to be enjoyed and something to be, to be partaken of by God. The food of the sacrifice, God would consume the fat. And then by the person offering it, they would have a portion. If they ate it inappropriately, the person that, that received this commandment, that offered this, if they ate it inappropriately, then it would become sinful. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 18. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be imputed unto him that offereth it. It shall be an abomination, and the soul that eateth of it shall bear his iniquity. So we see God takes this very seriously. When somebody wanted to bring a peace offering to God and make this offering, and he commanded them to eat of it, they needed to do it the right way. They needed to worship God appropriately, or it would become sinful. And even those who were ceremonial, uh, ceremonial ceremonially clean, only those who were ceremonially clean could eat of the offerings. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20. But the soul that eateth of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertaineth to the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. So we see this very serious to handle this properly when somebody's bringing a peace offering to God. Uh, there's a lot of peas, and I get myself tongue-tied here. So we see God has a portion, the person bringing the sacrifice has a portion, and then the priests who were handling the sacrifice, they also had a portion in this. Leviticus chapter 7, 34, For the wave breast and the heave shoulder have I taken of the children of Israel from, from off the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and have given them unto Aaron the priest and unto his sons by a statute forever from among the children of Israel. So they would bring these sacrifices, and the breast would be a wave offering by the priest. He would wave it before the Lord, and that would belong to the priest. And there was also the heave offering. It's like they take this, this other part, and instead of making this wave motion, they would make this heaving up offering before God. And really, when you kind of look at these pieces, when you see that God has a portion, that the offerer has a portion, and the priest has a portion, we really kind of get this beautiful picture here. It's a sharing of a peace offering between God and between the offerer and maybe others as they celebrated and invited them into the, the feast of that sacrifice, and even the priests. So it's this divine feast of fellowship between God and man. It's beautiful and it's special and it's wonderful. And, and whatever the case may be, it seems like it was very significant and it was very special and not something to be lightly done and, and abused. So that's just to set up our minds and to know what is going on as we enter into the story of Eli and the sons of Belial. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, we're introduced to this man, Eli, now, you might remember the story of Hannah, and she prayed for a child, and God blessed her with Samuel. And he was one of the last judges of Israel during their, their history there of wandering in the wilderness and entering into the land of Canaan and all the judges that God raised up. Samuel was one of the last judges. And Eli was the priest at that time. And, and he's the one who spoke with Hannah and then took Samuel in, just to give some context and some history. But we're introduced to this man and his sons in 1 Samuel 1.3. This man went up out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, speaking of, of Hannah's husband. 
And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So he has these two sons, Hophni and, uh, and Phinehas. They were priests. So this tells us they are the sons of Aaron. Eli would have been a, a, a descendant of Aaron, and, though he's, and he's the high priest, and so his sons are sons of Aaron. Very special service. Very special place as the priest handling the sacrifices of the people of God. But there's a problem with these sons. And we find that out in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. Now if you, if you recall, as you uh, think through the scriptures, Baal and Balaam and, and Baal worship, it's idol worship. And idols are not living things. They're something that's created out of the imagination of man and crafted with our own hands. And God repeatedly gave them instruction about this and taught them about this and told them how worthless it was for them to worship the things that, have, of, that are of creation. It was worthless. And so this phrase, sons of Belial, means they are worthless men. The sons of Eli were worthless. They knew not the Lord. It's pretty sad and pretty horrible that the priests that are receiving the sacrifices of the people don't know the Lord. And the priest's custom, the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand and he struck it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot and all the flesh hook uh, all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh until all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. And if a man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth. Then they would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. We see this very egregious thing that these sons of Eli are doing. They're worthless sons. They're sons of Belial. They don't know the Lord. And they're not properly serving God. They were following the own, their very own custom that they developed. And they created out of their own heart and their own imagination. And made that uh, above God's law and following it properly. We read that for ourselves in Leviticus where God told the priests how to handle these things. And God's offering was first. He received the fat, and then the, the person offering has a portion, and then the priest has a portion. That's how God commanded it to be done. But Hophni and Phinehas, their practice was completely different. It was all centered around serving themselves before they were serving God. Before they even burned the fat to God, they got their meat. I want my meat first. And they selfishly get, wanted to get more than what God provided for them. You know, this is sad, and this is a slap in the face to God, because he made sure that the sons of Aaron were taken care of when they were taking care of the offering. They were separated, and they were special. They didn't go out and labor and go and take care of cattle and do all the things that the other Israelites did. That's why they received the portion of the sacrifices that God gave them, to take care of them, to give them this special blessing. And it was something that was most holy, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 11, it says, And this is, this is thine, the heave offering of their gift, with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. All the children of Israel. There was hundreds and thousands of them. That's a lot, of, that's a lot for them to receive by the hand of, of the people of Israel. 
He says, all these offerings I have given them to thee and to thy sons and to thy daughters with thee by a statute forever. Everyone that is clean in thy house shall eat of it. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the wheat, the first fruits of them which they shall offer unto the Lord, I have given them thee. Wow. How incredible is that? These priests were well taken care of by God and they received of the first fruits of the children of Israel and they, that they brought and sacrificed to God. And he made sure they were taken care of. They were blessed in their service to him as the priests, taking care of the special service of God. It's a special privilege. But these sons of Belial, they were not satisfied with having the best of what God had to offer. It's as if the portions of all of Israel weren't enough. So they sent their servants into those sacrifices and used these flesh hooks to jab it in there and get more out of these sacrifices than they deserved. They wanted more. And they sinned greatly against God by doing this because they were worshiping God improperly. And as the story unfolds, we find that a prophet of God comes to rebuke and issue judgment against this evil. And he confronts, this man of God confronts their father, Eli. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear to thee in the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? God showed himself to the people. We read about that when he brought them out of, out of Egypt. He descended upon the mountain and he saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the sound of the trumpet and, and the rope that they put around and they wouldn't touch it or they would die. And they heard the voice of God and they told Moses, we don't want to talk to God, you talk to God. And he appoints Aaron as the high priest and he's saying, didn't I do this plainly and, and made your house, the house of your father, the head house of the priesthood? And didn't I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To offer upon mine altar? To burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering which I have commanded in my habitation? And honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Notice what God is telling him here as he rebukes him. This is my sacrifice. This is my offering in my habitation from my people. And these priests only had the benefit of getting this portion from God because God gave it to them and gave them this privilege. And these sons of Eli had the audacity to be in God's house and take the best of what belonged to God. This was so egregious that God pronounces judgment against Eli and his sons and he says, you will die. Did not raise up a high priest who is faithful to me. This is horrible. This is egregious. This is terrible. They were improperly worshiping God. And not only were they improperly worshiping God because they were not correctly, they were doing improper service to their family. The people of Israel. Their own brethren. You would think that the priests would have this great sense of responsibility in making sure that they're offering correctly, making sure that they're handling the sacrifices correctly, and making sure that the people are following the commandments of God. That's what they were supposed to be. But they weren't. And because the sons of Eli weren't following God's commandments properly, they were causing the children of Israel to sin against God and not follow the commandments correctly. That's what Eli comes and tells them. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
As if it's egregious enough for them to be doing this and taking more of the sacrifices from God than belongs to them. They're also committing fornication in the presence of God and all the people at the door of the tabernacle, in the house of God. These are truly worthless sons. And he said to them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all these people. Nay, my sons, for it is, not, it, it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. Eli comes and he pleads with them and says, I'm hearing all this terrible news. You're making God's people to sin. And this is exactly what God was concerned about with the conduct of the priests. To be in such a high office, it required faithful men. And another time when God warned Israel about the priests and the corruption and really the role they were supposed to be doing, he says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, he says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. God here is rebuking these priests and saying, you should be more. People should be coming to you because you're leaders among the people of God, showing them how to worship God properly. And they should be coming to you to understand the law. And, and they should be seeking the law at your mouth. You ought to be a teacher of these things, and a, not just a teacher of these things, a representative of God. You are a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And their conduct should have been top-notch. It should have been spotless, irrebukable, irreprovable. But it wasn't. They abused this very important role of the priests they were supposed to be in. They were not example. They were not a good example to others. They didn't teach other people how to do the law. And the problem is this: when the people, when the men that are supposed to be in this position as the priests of God, when they turn away from the law of God and they depart, guess who will as well? All of Israel. Because these are the religious leaders. Remember when Aaron committed sin? He didn't, he didn't put a stop to it. He went right along with it and caused them to sin. And Moses was so angry with him. What did this people to you that you made him commit such a sin? We see other instances of that. When, when the sons of Aaron uh, were consumed by the fire in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab, uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, when they were consumed by the fire. God did it in front of all the congregation because it was such a serious thing for the priest to be doing it wrong. That would corrupt the rest of the people. And so it had to be dealt with in, that, in such a public fashion. And these sons of, these sons of Eli were, were committing such an egregious sin by making the people of Israel commit sin. The other thing they were doing to their own brethren was robbing them. They were stealing their brothers' and sisters' offerings that those people were bringing to the sacrifice or to the tabernacle to sacrifice. We saw the Thanksgiving. It was supposed to be for, or the peace offerings. It was supposed to be for Thanksgiving or for vows or for free will offerings. It's a special blessing and a special sacrifice. But they robbed that from their own brethren. They were so selfish. And when anyone was reasonable with them, and suggested, hey, well, you burn the fat to God first, the way God wants us to, they were threatened by that. And they said, no, you're going to give us the meat we want now. We'll worry about God later. We want our meat now. We want our pound of flesh now. Give me what I want. Or else we will just take it by force. 
If you're not going to listen, we'll just make you do it. They're taking away more meat than belongs to them, and they're taking away the portion that belonged to the person offering it. Remember, it's a special thing shared between God and man, and it's being taken away from them in selfishness, ripped away. And if it's sinful enough to steal earthly things, how much more egregious is it if they're stealing holy things? In the stealing of their brothers and their sisters' sacrifices and their portions, they were robbing their joy. It was a celebratory sacrifice. And we have a picture of this uh, repeatedly in the scriptures, but think about when the Israelites crossed Jordan into the promised land. Joshua leads them over there in that promised land. What an amazing occasion. What a wonderful day, a day to be celebrated. And God commanded them to make peace offerings and to celebrate this day. And says it in Deuteronomy 27, verse 7, And thou shalt offer peace offerings, and thou shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. It was a celebration. It was a joyful thing to bring peace offerings to God. And sadly, they robbed the joy out of offering the sacrifice for in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, the sons of, of Eli. Their sin was very great. Why? For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They abused this process and made it all about them and made it all about their glory and all the, about the meat that they could get for themselves and make themselves fat with, so much so that the children of Israel hated to do this offering. How horrible is that? The priests of God are making the children hate worshiping God. And ultimately, they're robbing God even more, if you, if you think about it, because he's stealing these people's desire to worship him. All because of their sinfulness. It's a tragic story. Later on, Hophni and Phinehas would die at the hands of the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat, the most valuable possession, the, the very center of their worship was taken away. And when Eli hears of that ark being taken, he falls back in his seat and he breaks his neck and he dies. And so they all died just the way God had declared they would. This judgment was pronounced against them and, God, and it was executed. The reason this story is so important for you and, you and me is because we are the royal priesthood of God. We are the ones who have been made to offer sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of great value that we can gain from reading this account about our own selves and about our own uh, service to Christ. And here's a few things and a few questions and a few thoughts that we can ask ourselves. The first obvious one, The first obvious one would be to fathers. Now I know it's getting harder and harder for us to talk about these things and to say the things that need to be said, but men, you need to be men. We need to be men. I'm saying this to myself just as much. I'm a, I'm a young father, and I have children, and I'm rearing them up, and I'm trying to do my best to, to help them be servants of the Lord. 
And now, probably more than ever, we need men in the church that are leading their families. It needs to be a way of life. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19, And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou, when thou risest up. Make it a part of your life of worshiping God correctly and being the leader of your home. It's not your wife's responsibility to be the leader of your home. It's your responsibility. You need to be a man and you need to teach the children that, that what it means to follow God and worship them. And they should be able to look at your life and see and observe your ways. Proverbs 23 verse 26, My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Are we the kind of men, are we being in the church the kind of men and encouraging each other to be the kind of men that we need to be so that our sons and our daughters can look at our ways and know what it means to worship God properly? That's what we need to be. Desperately. Eli valued his sons and what they were doing so much more than the commandments of God. And we can't allow ourselves to be that way. We cannot allow each other, brothers, to be pulled down to such a state and say, well, I'm going to value whatever my kids are doing way more than what God wants. We see that rampant all the time in the church. And it's sad and it's heartbreaking. And if you teach your children by that example that they're valued much more than God is valued, they're going to end up just like the sons of Eli, worthless children, children of Belial, only seeking their selfish desires, causing destruction because they think they're worshiping God correctly, but they're not. It causes such pain and such sorrow and such destruction. But men, we are accountable for our families. I think that's important and that needs to be said. Be the leader of your family. Don't honor your sons above God. Don't honor your children above God. And importantly, when we examine our lives and examine our ways for all of us, as the children of God, as the royal priesthood of God, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Folks, we are in a special service. We are in a special role to our God and to our King. As living stones, our offerings are made acceptable through, to God by Jesus Christ and we are part of His royal priesthood and we are made to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God and to share in that joy with our family, the family of Christ. And we need to be sure as the people of God that we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We need to be doing it with the, with the right motivation in our heart and for the right, uh, in the right fashion that God has instructed us to do. John chapter 4, verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a, is a spiritual being, and He wants us as His worshipers to be worshiping Him in with, in spiritual ways. And he says you need to do it in spirit, with the right attitude, with the right motives, with the right desires, and in truth. Following the commandments, making sure we're doing it in the, in the due order that God has appointed for us to do as his royal priesthood. And we need to ask ourselves, are we all putting in the care to ensure that we are, what we're doing to worship uh, God is, is done properly? We don't have much excuse to not know what to do. Eli and his sons had no excuse to not know what to do. They had the book of the law. They were supposed to be teachers of the law. We have all the information we need in the New Testament. And we have 
the ability and capability to study the Word of God and to know what and how we do things and whether or not they're correct. And we need to take the great care and the desire upon ourselves to have this kind of heart and attitude that says, I'm going to find out for myself. I'm not just going to follow willy-nilly. I'm not just going to be unintentional about my service to God and just blindly following along and really not know what we're doing. I'm just going to play along. We need to be intentional about our service to God and know why we're doing what we're doing. It's so important. And when we're worshiping God, when we're looking for His truth, when we're doing the things that need to be done, we need to understand that it's not about us. It's not about being seen of men to prove that we're some great thing in the church. That Oh, we have such great knowledge and we're such a great teacher. Or look at me, I'm such a great worker in the, in the kingdom. Who cares about how much glory we get That got the sons of Eli in trouble. They were so concerned about getting something for themselves instead of giving to God what belonged to Him. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5-9. through Paul writing, he says, Who then is Paul? He's trying to help the church understand. He's He's just a man. And so is Apollos. He says, Who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, and neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. Ultimately, the hero of this story is not you or I. And, and we need to come to terms with that. We're not all that important. And we're not all that, that much of a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Just like Paul is saying about he and Apollos, we're just ministers. We're just servants of the king. Going out and spreading out what belongs to God. And helping other people and inviting other people into God's house through the sacrifice of himself to follow his commandments to become his people. We're not inviting people into a club that belongs to us, that's shaped by our own opinions and our own thoughts and our own mind. We're inviting them to be God's people along with us so that together, side by side, as God's building, as God's husbandry, we can labor together spreading forth the message of the gospel. And sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes it's hard to not feel proud of your own efforts boy, I went out and preached this many gospel meetings and I had this many studies each night and I baptized this many people and I helped this many counseling. I had this many counseling sessions or that many counseling sessions. Who cares? It's easy to be lifted up with our own works. It's easy to take joy in somebody's growth and their spiritual development. Yeah, maybe you spent the time and you put in the effort and you planted and you, and you watered and you see them growing spiritually, but it's not like you caused something. It's God's word that caused it all. God is the one who gives the increase. Now, I'm not going to, uh, I won't be so bold to discount the service and the labor that goes into that. We need to be laborers and we need to help. But truthfully, the glory does not, it, I don't matter as much as sometimes I think I do, or as sometimes I think I might should. And that's the attitude and mentality we need to have when we're working and laboring in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you, you'll have much more results. I think we could get a lot more done if we would just get out of our own way and not expect all this glory to come to us and people to pat us on the back or even ourselves to pat ourselves on the back. Remember, 
This all comes from God. And just like he took care of the priest's needs, just as he gave them the best of what he had to offer, as members of the body of Christ, as members of the royal priesthood, your spiritual needs will be taken care of and you have everything you need if we remain faithful to him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, uh, Paul wrote about holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. It's his wonderful and beautiful uh, body as living stones built up this spiritual house of God, this body that's joined together by all these joints and all these bands as he talks about. And we're increased, all of us are increased with the increase of God. And Jesus is the head. And all the glory goes to him because we're part of his body. It's not about you and it's not about me. And we need to make absolutely sure that our heart and our mind is aligned with the scriptures, that we are worshiping God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we are honoring this first great commandment. Let's make sure that we as priests are doing it correctly for the right reasons. Now the second thing we need to make sure of as individuals, we need to ask the question, am I serving God properly? And the next question is, am I serving my brethren properly? We saw the devastation that, it was that was caused by these sons of Eli who were not serving their brethren properly, causing them to sin. They were robbing their own brethren for their own benefit. And we need to make sure that we're not doing the same thing. Robbing our brethren just for our own glory and for our own benefit. You know, when there was a transition in the New Testament from going away from the commandments of the old law and the requirement to be circumcised in order to be a member of the covenant, that was a problem in the church. And we have an example of this in the New Testament. This was a problem. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 2 through 4, Paul wrote encouraging them about this. And really, there's a lot about the New Testament that deals with this particular issue. Because the Jews were having to let go of parts of the old law and the things that, that were done away with in Christ and were having to adopt this new way about being a, royal, a part of the royal priesthood of God and being the holy people of God. And now these Gentiles who were not subject to the law before are being invited into the family of God. And so you have these two very uh, different groups on both ends of the spectrum being brought together in one in Jesus Christ. And as you would imagine, that would cause problems and friction in the early days of the church. And in Galatians, Paul is writing and encouraging to them helping them to understand. He says in verse 2 there in Galatians chapter 5, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. In Acts chapter 15, there's this, there's this big meeting at Jerusalem with the, with the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. And the question is, do the Gentiles that join the church need to be circumcised in order to be saved? The people who were from the Jewish religion said, yes, they must be circumcised. They have to be circumcised if they want to be saved, if they want to be part of Christ now. And it caused devastation in the church. Because the Gentiles were getting swept up with that. And Paul is writing here. And if you read the pleading in Galatians, he's saying, what are you doing? We've been freed from that law. What are you doing? And now he's telling them, if you follow through with that, because these Jews are coming over here and putting pressure on you, telling you, you need to be circumcised and you give in, guess what? Christ becomes meaningless to you. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor now to do the entire law. You've made yourself subject to that one commandment, you need to be subject to the entire law. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever you are justified of the law, you are fallen from grace. 
This was a huge problem in the church. And these Jews, they were so concerned with themselves and upholding their own traditions that they did not stop to think of the harm they were causing to these Gentile brothers and sisters. Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest you should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Paul is making it very plain. These Jews don't care about following the law. We saw history with following the law all through the days of Israel. We saw by the time Christ comes how well they were following the law and really how well they weren't. And Christ comes to elevate the, their mind and their thinking about following the, the, God, the law and obeying God and, and loving your neighbor as yourself. But these Jews just care so much about getting this commandment across to them saying, you must be circumcised. You must do these things that we think are important for you to be saved. And they were ripping the church apart. And I'll tell you, I've heard a lot of stories from the older folks about the church being ripped apart in the past. Because people were too busy pushing their own opinions as commandments of, of God and honoring themselves above God and seeking their own glory and going around forcing people to, to submit to their own way so that they could take pleasure in the fact that they have this flock of people following them. Folks, we need to be careful and be sure that we're not pushing ideas that are not rooted in Scripture so that we can just win people to our own way of thinking. Because if we do that, we're just like these sons of Baal, worthless sons of God who are going around and just making people give us what we want out of their lives and stealing away from their, the, the glory of God and stealing their sacrifices to God. We need to make sure that we don't get frustrated with people when they don't serve my way and the way that I think they need to do it. There was a man who exalted himself and lifted himself up in the early days of the church. John names him Diotrephes in verse 3, verse 1. Uh, Third John, Third John 1, verse 9 through 10, he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and cast them out of the church. Do we get bitter about people that don't give us what we want from their life and their service to God? I'm not talking about asking people to, to bring their life into alignment with the scriptures. Because sometimes people don't do that. And it's, and it's frustrating when you're trying to help people learn and, and they just won't heed the word of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking when we get something so stuck in our mind. An opinion that we hold. And a way of life that we think ought to be had. That we, we cannot look past the soul. Uh, we cannot look past that to the soul that is right in front of us. And maybe we get upset with little things that don't, don't, maybe they don't matter quite as much as we think they might. I'm okay with striving for excellence, but I myself have felt annoyed, and I've heard other people get mad or annoyed. Well, they just don't sing that good. They just don't sing quite right. They're, they're kind of off key. Maybe the person, oh, he, he just can't read that well. He stammers around when he reads. Maybe people don't dress to our liking. Don't wear the kind of clothes that we would like for them to wear. 
Maybe they don't raise their families the exact same way we do. And so we look at them frustrated and just bitter about, why can't these people just do what I want? That's exactly what those priests were doing. And we run around to our brothers and sisters with the flesh hooks of our opinion, and we rip it into their lives, and we rip out trying to take out what we want for our own selves. And it's horrible. Because we're stealing the glory from God. And we're trying to get something that doesn't belong to us. Instead of facilitating proper worship on their behalf and help them as the priesthood of God, help them worship God properly. I'll tell you, if, if, if we're not mindful of our own opinions, it could wreak havoc in the church. And it's sad because I'm seeing that on social media these days. People running around using social media as their flesh hook, making these posts, ripping it into the lives of the church and saying, you need to do it this way. And it's heartbreaking. And it's tragic. And you know what that causes? Destruction. Because all I see is fighting. Infighting from the church. Infighting from Christians who should be loving each other. Jesus said in John 17 that you ought to love one another and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples indeed. And if we're not displaying that picture as the royal priesthood of God, then what are we saying to the world? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. Why? So that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. It's our job to go around and try to gain the souls that are out there. There's people with all kinds of backgrounds and all walks of life, and if we go around just casting people out because we can't stop and lay our, our opinion down enough to see past our own selves and see a soul that is in need to help them be partakers of the glory of God with us, what are we doing? What we do is for the gospel's sake so that we can save souls. It's not about us. It's not about people conforming to our opinions. And if we go around selfishly demanding that people give us what we want from their service, we might just be in danger of the same sins of Hophni and Phinehas. And what was, what was it that they caused in people? Did they cause people to glorify God and to love God more and to worship Him properly? No. People abhorred the offering of the Lord. And we might be in danger of making people hate worshiping God. How many people have left the church frustrated because people just won't put their opinions down? It's devastating. And it ought not to be so from the church of God. We need to ask ourselves very honestly, are my selfish feelings and actions making other people hate worshiping God? If we go around doing this, we're going to cause problems. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33, Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood, so the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. 
If people come to us reasonably and say, why don't we look at what the Bible says and worship God? Don't be like these priest servants going, no, I don't care about what God wants. I care about what I want. Give me my portion or I'll take it by force. Because when we force wrath, it brings forth strife and it's going to cause destruction in the church. Brothers and sisters, I'm making a plea with you as members of the body of Christ for all of us to encourage each other to be the royal priesthood of God. The one that God intended for us to be holy as He is holy. To follow His commandments and worship Him properly. And to love our brothers as, as ourselves. And yea, as Christ gave the, the, this third great command, not so much about our neighbors as ourselves, but it says to love each other so much that you're willing to lay down your own life for each other. Love you and love me Let's love each other the way Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. That's the true picture of the holy people of God, and that's what's going to win the hearts and minds of the souls of this nation, and we need this now more than ever. The sons of Eli were committing sin by, against God by not worshiping him properly. They were so selfish. They wanted the best for themselves, and they caused harm. What about us? That's the question for us. What about us? Are we serving God with a proper heart and seeking His glory? Do we have an appropriate attitude when we come and worship Him? Or do we have an expectation that's causing our brothers to hate God? Causing our sisters to be turned away from hearing of the Lord? These are very serious things, folks. And this is for us as members of the royal priesthood of God to consider. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.